Welcome to the March 23rd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and my desire is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, we read uh, in Joshua chapter 14 and 15, and then we begin the Gospel of Luke with Luke chapter 1. So once again, it's Joshua 14 and 15 and Luke chapter 1. If you've not read those chapters yet, hit pause, go back, read God's Word for yourself and listen to what He would say to you, and then come back and listen to what I've got to say. Or, if you've already read these chapters, let's get started. Joshua chapter 14. Uh, This chapter has one of my all-time favorite, uh, as it were, mic drop moments uh, in Scripture. I love uh, what shows up in Joshua 14. Um, In verses 1 through 5, we read about Israel's inheritance uh, being separated in Canaan uh, with the nine and a half tribes, like Moses had said before he died. Um, that they were doing this. They were uh, taking the land and the land was being distributed. But then the bulk of the chapter in verses 6 through 15, we get to listen to a guy named Caleb. Now, if if, uh, we're perceptive, we would readily realize and remember that Caleb and Joshua, Joshua being the leader, and Caleb now approaches Joshua These were two of the 12 spies that went into the promised land 45 years earlier. And uh, the 40-year wilderness wandering had not yet happened because the Israelites had an opportunity to go into the land. But Moses, if you remember, sent in 12 spies. 10 came back after 40 days. 10 came back and said, no, we can't take it. It's good. It's all that God said it was, but we cannot take it. And two said, oh, it's, it's difficult, but it's never, it was never up to us. It's God. God has given us the promises. God will give the victory through us for himself. He will do this. The two that said, let's trust the Lord, let's do it, was Joshua, who is now leading the Israelites, and Caleb, who approaches Joshua in verses 6 through 15. So, as uh, Caleb approaches Joshua, they are by far the two oldest guys in Israel at this time. Um, If the oldest person, you know, because remember, in the wilderness, everybody 20 years old and and older uh, died in the wilderness. And so, the ones who started the wilderness wondering that would end up in the promised land were 19 years old and younger. So, if you add... Uh, 40 years to that, you come up with 59 years old. And then if you add five years for all of the the, the conquering that has gone on in there, uh, then you come up with 64 years old. So the oldest Israelite in the land right now is 64 years old, except for Joshua and Caleb, who are much older. Caleb is now 85 in verse 10. It says he's 85. And as an 85-year-old man, he goes to Joshua and says, Hey, Joshua, you remember, you know, um, 
of the incident that happened 45 years ago when you and I came back and we tried to convince the people of Israel to take the land that God had told us he was going to do this through us and we called the people of Israel to faith, but they listened to the other 10 and because of that we wondered for 40 years. He said, essentially, he was saying, Joshua, do you remember what it was that those 10 spies referred to to try to scare everybody to death and, and get them to not go into the land? What they did was they scared them with the Anakim. They talked about the Anakim. They said there are giants in the land, and we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. Well, Caleb, in these verses, as he's talking to Joshua, says to Joshua in verse 12, as an 85-year-old man, listen to what he says actually in verse 14. He says, now give me this hill country the Lord promised me on that day, because you heard that the Anakim are there, as well as large fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord promised. And so what is Joshua doing? Joshua is saying, you know what? I just want to prove that God could have done it 45 years ago. God was willing and able to give the victory to us 45 years ago. We wasted 40 years in the wilderness. I just want to prove that God could have done it 45 years ago. And I want to go in and take them now. Because the Anakim were still there. They still had some fortified cities. And so Caleb said, give me that hill country. Give me that place where those Anakim live and where those cities, the walls are so high and impenetrable. And I want to go take them. Ask me how I'm going to take them. I don't have a clue. All I know is the Lord said that I could have that land. The Lord said that we were going to have the land of Israel. So give me that hill country I'm going to go take them in the Lord's name with his strength and power. And so he does. And so we may ask the question, we may ask the question, was Caleb successful? You know, because sometimes there's a little bit of humor sometimes in some silly movies that we watch where somebody acts uh, like they've got valor and courage and they go off to this grand adventure and then something small snuffs them out and they're gone, you know, and it's like anticlimactic. So what about Caleb? He was demonstrating courage and valor. Did he take the hill country? Did he defeat the Anakim? Well, listen to verses 13 through 15. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron still belongs to Caleb. Now, this is written way after the, the event, right? It's written after the event. Joshua is writing the book after Caleb went in. And so he said, as he's writing the book years after Caleb went to the hill country, he said, therefore Hebron still belongs to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, as an inheritance today because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, completely. Hebron's name used to be Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest among the Anakim. It used to be called that after the greatest man of the Anakim, but it's not called that anymore. It's called Hebron to this day. Very, very clearly, Caleb, 
kicked their booty. <laughs> and so I just love this. An 85-year-old man said, God could have done it years ago. And I just want to show that as an 85-year-old man, God can still do it. God hasn't changed. And he wanted to, to do this years ago. I just want to show that God could do it and will do it. And so Caleb went in and took it. But I also see one more thing before we close with this chapter. I also see that at 85, he was ready for an adventure. Caleb was ready for a new and a fresh adventure. There is something desperately wrong in our culture when we think that when you hit American culture, when we think that when you hit 65, that you can retire and then sit back and do nothing and just talk about all of the things that are in your rear view mirror. I do not believe, I mean, show me any place in scripture where it says that we can retire. Now, I'm not saying to to get to a certain point where you're not able to do your job effectively and you need to segue into something else. I'm not saying that. That would be good. But this whole notion of thinking that, uh, you know, once an adult, twice a child, you know, just as children that are young um, spend their time just consumed in themselves and playing games and entertaining themselves, I'm afraid we've got a culture where a lot of the older folks feel like it's that same way. They feel like, you know, they're stepping aside, they've done their duty, and so there's no adventures for them, and they spend their monies entertaining themselves and just enjoying the, the final years of their life. I'm telling you, in the kingdom, uh, there is no time to retire. There's a time maybe to change jobs and to get into something that's more suited to our age and our energy level and our strength and our mental abilities. But there's never a time that we should reach where we say, I'm, I'm not ready for another adventure. Everything is behind me. How boring is that? I mean, there's going to come a time when we cross the finish line, but that's when we breathe our last breath. Caleb at 85 was ready for an adventure. I would encourage you that if you were that age or certainly older, do not think that your life is all over and now you're just sucking air and just waiting for Jesus to come back for you. Realize that there could be something incredible. Maybe it's something that you may think is is so simple, but maybe it could be an adventurous prayer ministry where you are passionate about praying for your pastor and praying for the spiritual leaders in the church and praying for your community and praying for lost people and praying with passion, not just out of just with vain words, but with a heart that is passionate because God loves passion. Maybe that could be your adventure, but find something to do where you are not just talking about all of the things in your past, always live in such a way that you're looking forward to what God would do in and through you. That's what Caleb did, and I want that to be true of me. I hope you want that to be true of you as well. When we get to Joshua 15, uh, this is just a chapter where the land is once again being described and allotted. It's being uh, distributed and, and the boundaries are being described in such a way that uh, this is to be clear for all future generations that this is where the the tribe of Judah is to reside within all of these boundaries. And this is where Caleb and Othniel, that's where their land is going to be. 
um, Judah cities, and it goes through a whole list of cities. It's just the clarity of what belongs to whom, what land and what cities belong to what tribe. And we may think, well, this isn't, this isn't that big of a deal. Well, yes, it really is. Because when you go back to uh, the Abrahamic covenant back in the book of Genesis, go back to Genesis, I'm just trying to remember Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. There, there's another chapter or two where the Abrahamic covenant is given. You realize it's not just that, um, that Abraham was going to have a nation come from him, that he was going to be the father of a great nation. It also, the Abrahamic covenant was also tied to the land that everywhere you walk, it's going to be yours. It's going to be your descendants. And so Joshua 15 is just God saying, yep, I did what I said I was going to do. I always make good on my promises and I promised to Abraham. And now that his descendants have come into the land, now we're fencing it off and we're, we're, just, we're uh, determining uh, which child of Israel, uh, which tribe of Israel uh, these uh, different segments of the land belong to. And so really Joshua 15, even though it may seem mundane and boring, it is, it is simply, or it could be more, but it is no less than God saying, I fulfilled my promise, that I promised to Abraham that I would give him the land, and now I'm distributing the land. Friend, I'm telling you, God has intended every single promise in his word. God has not given us the promise of owning land in Canaan. That was to the Israelites. Many promises in Scripture were given to individuals at a specific time for a specific reason, and we cannot apply them. It would be malpractice to claim some of the promises in Scripture because they were never intended for us. But there are many, many, many promises in Scripture that are intended for us. And let Joshua 15 be a reminder that even though we may sometimes feel as if we're resting in God's promise, but it's not coming true. We're, we're trusting in God to do what he said he's going to do in his word, but he's not doing it. Well, let Joshua 15 remind us that God is going to fulfill his promise if we're resting and relying upon that and if we can rightly appropriate it to ourselves. But it's not for us to determine when and how. So be someone who is in God's word, you're spending time in God's word, you're getting into it and finding those precious promises that his Holy Spirit would give to you and hold on to them and trust in them and rest in them and then leave it up to the Lord as to how it is that he is going to fulfill that promise. You may need to go and search scripture for a promise about you know, how he is with you and because maybe you feel lonely that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. Maybe you are anxious and stressed and you need to rest in the promise of cast all your cares before the Lord because he cares for you. Or um, as we're told in Proverbs, to uh, give all of our anxieties to him, lifting them up in prayer and thanksgiving uh, with petitions. We're to make our uh, requests known unto God and the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That verse, those verses tell us that if we give the Lord our cares, 
then he will, he promises, give us his peace that passes all understanding. That's a promise. And so whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever it is that's going on, look in God's word, ask God's Holy Spirit to give you at least one precious promise that you can hold on to, to know that that is one that the Holy Spirit is giving to you and rest in it. And then don't doubt just because you don't see God immediately answering that, continue to rest Because rest assured, God has intended every single promise that he's given, and in his own way, and in his own time, he will bring it to pass. You can take that to the bank. Luke chapter 1, there is so much in this chapter, um, but I will try to be concise um, and uh, try to take no more than 15 minutes um, hopefully 10 minutes to uh, to get through this chapter. So let's just jump at, jump into it and uh, see if we can kind of deal with at least some of the high points. In verses 1 through 4, the thing that I think pops up to me is, is the name of this person that Luke was writing to. Two of the things that pop up. One was the name of the person he was writing to, and he calls him O Theophilus. Theophilus. Well, the Greek word theos means God. So Theophilus, Theos is God. Philos is, uh, you know, we've got a city in the United States called Philadelphia. So it's the city of brotherly love. And so Theophilus, Theophilus, this name, means a lover of God or a friend of God, someone who dearly cares for God. And so the question becomes, who is this? Who is Theophilus? Is he a real person Um, that had that real name that maybe his mom and dad named him Theophilus on the day that he was circumcised on the eighth day? Or was it someone maybe who was funding uh, Luke's research, uh, and so they were financially giving to Luke, and yet Luke believed that if he named them, they could be persecuted, and so he just named him or nicknamed this, this person who was funding his research lover of God or friend of God, so he was writing it to him? Or could it be that uh, Luke is giving the name Theophilus to you and me, to every reader of the gospel? Oh, you lover of God, I'm writing this to you. Those of you who are a friend of God, I want to give you the account of how Jesus came to earth and how he lived and how he died and how he rose again. Oh, lover of God, oh, friend of God. I mean, any of those are possible. We don't know exactly what that is, uh, which one may be. Maybe there's another option. But, uh, but those are the, the ones that came to mind. The other thing that I see is that in we, as we read verses 1 through 4, we also realize that Luke is not saying that he saw all of this in a vision, and so he's just writing down what the Holy Spirit supernaturally gave him. That's not what he said. He said he actually researched he, he was serious in research, and so he searched out all of these things, and then we believe the Holy Spirit gave him the ability to write the story of Jesus on earth in Luke, and then to, to write about the next chapter in the church's history as he wrote about the formation and the growth of the church in the book of Acts. And so, whenever we get to Luke chapter 1 and we get to some of these details, about the uh, 
you know, the, the, the incident with Mary and, you know, Gabriel showing up to speak with her and Mary meeting with Elizabeth and uh, Mary's Magnificat, you know, her song of praise. Since Luke said he researched all of this, it is no stretch at all to think that on a trip that Paul made to Jerusalem, that Luke may have been with him. In the book of Acts, Luke may have been with him. And Luke, maybe while he was in Israel, found Mary, the mother of Jesus, and maybe sat down with pen and paper in hand and just asked her questions, primed the pump, and then listened as she spoke. And as he researched with her, he was able to write down, as the Holy Spirit led him, much of what appears in Luke chapter 1. In verses 5 through 25, we read that Gabriel predicts John's birth. He actually showed up to Zechariah the priest. Um, it says that Zechariah the priest and his wife were living godly lives. They were holy, and uh, but they were old and they had no children, had no children at all. And apparently Zechariah had been praying for years, maybe decades, that his wife could have a baby, but up to this point it had never happened. And so while Zechariah was serving in the temporal, temple uh, because he was a priest and that they had, I guess, rotations of when they would serve in the temple, Gabriel appeared to him. And uh, Gabriel made it very clear that God would give them a son and they would name him John. There, there was no question about this. They weren't to pick their own name. They were to name him John. And uh, he was told that, uh, that he would be the Elijah, that, the uh, that is the forerunner of the Messiah. In Luke 1.17, it says, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And so John would be the one who goes in front of the Messiah preparing the way. And uh, there, there was a practice with the Romans at that time that if there was some big, major personality in Roman culture that uh, before them, maybe a general or someone like that or a politician, way out in front, they would have an individual and they would have a team and they would be clearing the path. If there were rocks in the way, they would clear the rocks out of the way. If there were potholes, they'd fill those potholes in so that whenever this dignitary, whenever this person came by, maybe being carried, the road would be smooth. And so John the Baptist was going to be the one who prepared the way for Jesus so that the road would be smoother as Jesus came in to give the message of the kingdom. And so whenever uh, he is saying, the angel was saying that John the Baptist or baptizer would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, he was actually quoting from Malachi. And some of you I know are taking notes. And so you can write down Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Uh, Malachi, not only is the last book in the Old Testament, it was the, it was the final prophet, the final one to speak before heaven went silent for 400 years until Jesus showed up. Um, and so the last final words of Malachi were that there would be one that comes who gets things ready for the Messiah. 
and now heaven is now speaking. It's all, you know, a, a bustle and angels are showing up to Zechariah and an angel is showing up to Mary and a vision is given to Joseph and, and eventually angels are going to show up out in the field for the shepherds and Magi are going to show up saying they saw, I mean, everything's just going to start happening like crazy, but heaven has been silent for 400 years. The last thing that was said was that the prophet Elijah is going to come before uh, the Messiah comes. John the Baptist would be that Elijah with air quotes around it. Verses 26 through 38, Gabriel predicts Jesus' birth. It says in the sixth month, sixth month, we assume in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, where's Nazareth? If you know where the, de the Sea of Galilee is, and then if you would picture in your mind over on the left or to the west is the Mediterranean Sea, well, basically, Nazareth is about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. And I think, if I remember correctly, it's toward the south part of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And so, sent to Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Um, once again, I think that uh, how, do, how did Luke have this information? I just wonder if, thinking back to the first few verses of Luke, if Luke actually researched this by meeting with Mary. There is much to be said in verses 26 through 38. I wish that I could go into that, but I see that this, this segment's already nine minutes long. We've got to keep going. In verses 39 through 56, uh, Mary visits Elizabeth, uh, and um, that it's just so precious, you know, as the two ladies, they're talking mom talk. They're, they're, you know, if a guy was in the room, he would say, oh, really? You know, that baby doesn't know anything in there. But yet Elizabeth said, when you came in, Mary, uh, the baby within me jumped for joy. A guy would say, really? That baby doesn't even know anything that's going on. So you've got two women that are in love with the Lord and are filled with the Spirit, and both of them are pregnant. And they are experiencing things together and describing things that just makes you feel like you're on holy ground. And then Mary herself cannot contain it, cannot contain it anymore. And she just breaks out into a poem or a song. And a lot of times it's called uh, the Magnificat. Um, it's just a beautiful song of praise, a humble song of praise to the Lord from his humble servant, Mary. It's beautiful. In verses 57 through 66, uh, we read of the birth and the naming of John, that Elizabeth gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives were rejoicing with her. And uh, then, you know, when it came the eighth day to be circumcised, apparently the eighth day when circumcision happened on the male, that was when he got a name. And, uh, you know, they wanted to name him, the, the, the relatives, maybe the friends wanted to name him Zachariah, you know, after his dad. But his mom said, no, he will be called John. He will be called John. Well, that's good. not good enough for them. They, they didn't care what the mom had to say, so they went to the dad. Zechariah, he hadn't been talking for a while because uh, whenever the angel told him that, uh, that he would be giving birth to a son, that there was some doubt within this occasion. And so the um, 
And so the angel uh, made him mute where he, he couldn't speak. He couldn't speak. And so they came to Zechariah to verify, you know, what is it that we're to call or you're to call this son on this day? And he wrote out, his name is John. He wrote it emphatically. And all of a sudden, he was able to speak and everybody was rejoicing. Everybody was rejoicing, and they were looking at this little eight-day-old baby and thinking, with all of the special things that have been going on and that are now going on today, and now, as Zechariah mentioned his name, and now he's able to speak after months of not being able to talk, what's God going to do with this baby? What special things are going to happen in this baby's life? Well, in verses 67 through 80, we read of Zechariah's prophecy where he is just speaking prophetically about his son. One of the things that I, I want to say as we're kind of closing this segment out is that we as conservative Bible-believing Christians do not believe in progressive theology. Progressive theology is horrible. It is not biblical theology. Simply stated, progressive theology says, okay, this is what the Bible says, but that really isn't up to date. And so we need to kind of, you know, change it a little bit to make it a little bit more appeasing to today's culture and easily more embraced with today's culture. And so it's, it's basically liberalism. It, it's seeing the Bible and reading the Bible, but saying that, no, we have got to, to really change this and, and bring it up to date because, after all, we're in the 21st century and, and uh, you know, there are things that we know that we believe are not bad that the Bible speaks against, but that's how they talk of progressive theology. The theology is constantly progressing and changing. We do not believe that. But what we do believe in is progressive revelation. We do believe in progressive revelation. Now, what's that? It is the notion, not just the notion, but the clear observation that at the beginning of all things in the book of Genesis, there were there was really a lack of clarity on theological matters. It was just kind of beginning. And the more God spoke through his prophets, the greater clarity they had. So it was progressively revealing. God was progressively revealing truth. Truth is not changing, but they're gaining greater clarity on it, right? And so now we have greater clarity than any of them because we have the full text of Scripture. We've got the completed 66 books. And so as we look at it and we fit it all together, we've got a much greater clarity on theology than any of those, especially in the Old Testament, did. Well, when you read Zechariah's prophecy, you realize that there was a lack of clarity. He was speaking prophetically, but you could tell that he did not understand what we understand. We understand that Jesus came um, for 33 years, lived a perfect life. The last three or so years of his life, he engaged in ministry, and then he died, and then he rose again, and then 40 days later, he went to heaven, and now we are waiting for his second return. We understand that. That's clear to us. But for the Old Testament saints, many of them 
didn't realize that there were 2,000 plus years in between when Jesus came and when he set up his kingdom. They, they kind of thought it was all going to happen at the same time. Listen to what he said in verses 69 through 71. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. And so in Zechariah's mind, he believed that, yes, Mary's going to give birth to the Messiah. Our son John is going to be the forerunner, and they are going to break the chain of our enemies, that these Roman oppressions, uh, oppressors, these ones who have infiltrated our country and are our enemies, that Jesus will break the chains of that. And so he was thinking that Jesus' arrival, the Messiah's arrival, was immediately going to set up the kingdom. Progressive Revelation says, as time went on, as God continued to write through the New Testament writers, we now have a greater understanding, a greater clarity than he had. Is what he said true? Oh, absolutely it's true. That Jesus did come, and he came to bring salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. But we just realize that that's really not going to happen in this life. It's going to happen whenever, when we're saved, he breaks us from the enemy so that we're no longer bound to Satan. But ultimately, we're not going to be away from those who hate the Lord until he's called us home and until he comes back with us to set up his reign on this earth for a thousand years and then destroys everything and starts it all over again with only righteous people living on the new earth in the last two chapters of Revelation. So I just want to point that out, that as you read Old Testament and realize Zechariah's living in the Old Testament, the New Testament did not technically begin, the New Testament was not technically initiated until the death, burial, and resurrection. So everything before that is still in the Old Testament. John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet, even though he's in the New Testament Gospels because they, they, they were in the Old Testament. And I just want you to know that they lacked clarity only because God was continuing to reveal information. Friend, you and I know a whole lot more now than they ever knew back then. But with a greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. Let's seek to understand God's word. Let's seek to enjoy God's word so that we can apply it. And then as we're living it out, we're sharing it with others so that our life gives credibility to our words because people look at us and they see we're not just speaking what we say is true, but we love it so much we're living it out. So let's be people who, with a greater understanding of God's word, with the fulfillment of the revelation that God has given to us in his word, let's desire to know it, to understand it, to enjoy it, to apply it, and to share it with others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and uh, we thank you that you have given to us your word. Lord, we thank you that even as David in the Old Testament said, Oh, how love I your law. It's my meditation all of the day. We realize that uh, he didn't have but just a handful of books when he said, Oh, how I love your law. We've got 66. We've got so much more than he had. We've got greater 
a greater clarity, at least the potential for greater clarity. But Lord, I pray that we would still have the same heart attitude as David. Oh, how I love your word. Help us, Lord, to love your word, to be students of your word, to seek to understand it, to enjoy our time in it, to just enjoy the thrill of discovery. But Lord, I pray that it would never, ever, ever merely be about a desire to just obtain information and the joy of just merely obtaining information. I pray, Lord, that it would ultimately be about applying the truth to ourself and sharing it with greater clarity and with greater precision with others. Father, I do believe we are in the last days. Help us not to waste our life, but to live in such a way that we are people of the word, sharing our love for the word and our love for you with others. Give us effectiveness, Lord. Give us opportunities and give us courage and wisdom to take advantage of those opportunities. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we've come to the end of another episode, and so I just want to thank you for joining me on this trip. It is hard to believe that this is episode 82. Uh, whenever I started this journey off on uh, December 31st and did the first episode and even dropped the, the, the pilot program a, a day or two early, uh, I just didn't realize how big of a task this was going to be, but also how rewarding of a task this was going to be. But uh, yeah, the 82 episodes. It is March the 23rd, and March the 23rd, and already 82 episodes uh, of going through God's Word. So I'm looking forward to getting to 365. That's still a long way off, but I'm looking forward to continuing on in this journey in God's Word. I just want to encourage you to hang on. If you're not able to listen to all of the episodes, don't stress out about it. Don't give up altogether. Just chime in whenever you're able. And if you have one episode that just really, really means something to you, then share it. Tell somebody else about it. Maybe share it on social media and write one comment, one specific comment of uh, what that episode meant to you. And then that'll go a long way with getting others on board too. I love y'all and looking forward to spending some more time with you tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.